Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We are back where we belong, ladies and gentlemen, after a week's secondment to the Julia Hartley Brewer Breakfast Show. The Independent Republic returns for another week of common sense, something that is sadly lacking out there in the big wide world at the moment. Thank you very much indeed to Christo Fufas uh, for sitting in for me all last week. And thanks to uh, uh, Julia Hartley Brewer for coming back and allowing me to sleep until seven o'clock in the morning. First up, we've got all the allegations about Pretty Patel. Front page of the Times, where are they coming from? Who is behind them and why has she now ordered an inquiry into who is leaking damaging stories about her? It would appear that nothing in Whitehall is as it seems. The Home Secretary's war with her civil servants has now gone nuclear after claims were made that she has somehow lost the trust of MI5 and MI6. One of the more senior officials has already resigned from the Visa and Immigration Department and I've got a feeling that this will not end well. 0344 a 499 Meanwhile, the new Chancellor Rishi Sunak is preparing for a budget-busting spend next month because apparently he's got an extra £8 billion in the coffers. Some economists, though, are warning that more spending will eventually lead to higher taxes. Surely they can't tax us anymore, can they? 0344 499 1000. Coming up, we are joined by royal expert Robert Hardman, who's wondering this morning just who is advising Harry and Meghan in their latest spat with the Queen. Believe it or not, these people have actually put a sort of snitty statement out uh, on their website in which they more or less say, we can do whatever we like. You can't stop us. We will use the royal name if we so wish. Unbelievable. We'll be also finding out just how it is that anyone who might have been infected with coronavirus could have been put on a plane full of Britons being flown home to quarantine. Doesn't seem like a great idea to me. And as usual, we are live streaming the show. We're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, we're on YouTube as well. And of course, we want to hear from you because you are the voices of reason in this world. 0344 499 1000, except no substitutes. You're listening to me and watching me right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. So welcome to another stormy Monday. Apparently, uh, we've got another storm on the way. I'm getting heartily sick of these storms, by the way, I have to tell you. There were more road closures in Sussex over the weekend. You can shake a sticker. I thought at one point I wasn't actually going to be able to get home, uh, having gone out to the supermarket to buy some stuff, uh, because all the roads started to get closed off around me, I assume, uh, because of trees coming down. The A21 has been shut for uh, about a week now uh, around Tunbridge, which does not please me, because it means everybody has to go take a detour around that particular part of the world. But enough moaning 
moaning from my point of view because it's not as if anyone's setting me up here. It's not as if anyone is following me around and trying to leak damaging information about me. That's what's happening to Priti Patel, the Home Secretary, uh, a woman uh, who is being charged variously with being a bully, uh, with being intransigent, with being someone who uh, really, really makes people work hard. Well, what's wrong with that? Let's talk to Henry Hill, Assistant Editor at Conservative Home, to find out what he makes of all of this rumbling uh, that's going on around the Priti Patel kind of personality cult. Henry, very good morning to you. Good morning. It does seem as though things have taken a bit of a turn for the worse in Whitehall, doesn't it? We've already seen the departure uh, of one man uh, who has left the uh, UK Visas and Immigration Department. He's Mark Thompson, Director General. We're told, oh, nothing to do with him falling out with Priti Patel. Um, but there seems to be a pretty poisonous atmosphere there. There does. And I think that in, in a way this was almost inevitable um, when you think that the government has really come into office with Dominic Cummings declaring his intention to kind of go to war with the civil service. Yeah. Now, whatever you think of the merits of a Whitehall reform, you know, and I think there's a case to be made for it, it's always been very difficult precisely because the, the civil service are so entrenched. And that's before, and that's even when governments have sort of conducted themselves much less belligerently. And I think that, therefore, the, the idea that there was always going to be tension between, between senior ministers who were on board with this program and the civil service. Of course, the problem is that you can't, in the modern age properly, you can't dismiss bullying allegations, mm. um, you know, because it's up to the government to set an example for taking these kind of, of allegations seriously. And so the government can't really just say, oh, the, you know, there's nothing to see here. They do need to try, I think, and make sure that some kind of, of investigation takes place. Now, Priti Patel has this morning said that she wants a leak inquiry to try and find out who's spreading all of these rumours, and that's very good. But I think it would be very damaging for the government in the long term if it allowed the perception to build up that it sort of stands by ministers who are accused of abusing their position without checking that they're not. Well, that's the problem, isn't it, with the words bullying? It's one of those kind of uh, triggered words, which, as you say, nobody can ignore. If somebody accuses you of being a bully, uh, you're immediately assumed to be one. And that's the problem, because people know that if they are in a situation at work, they can sort of hurl that allegation at someone, and, and suddenly they're under a cloud. That's true. I mean, that's very true. It's one of the reasons that I think the, the, one of the challenges really facing, um, facing the government with this is, is, on the one hand, how do you have... Um, impartial and independent HR procedures for, for somewhere as unusual as politics, uh, whilst at the same time pre preventing kind of institutional capture of those procedures, you know, the civil service. But it, um, but it, it again, it is, it's a tension, and it's a tension that applies not just to Pretty Patel. You know, there's a power struggle going on between, um, uh, the fundamental power struggle is between the civil service and Dominic Cummings. Yeah. And what we've seen this week, really, is that in, or, or last week, is that in the aftermath of Dominic Cummings, you know, alleged humiliation and, and, and mistreatment of some of the special advisors. It's the civil service capitalising on this because they're, set, they're, they're proposing to set up a HR service for special advisors with the public intention of making sure that special advisors are being treated with respect. So I think there's a real danger here that the government and, or elements of the government are making their job harder by giving the civil service um, opportunities and open goals to pick these battles mm. on sympathetic territory. And also the reasoning behind Dominic Cummings' supposed kind of vitriol towards the special advisers and many in the civil service is his belief that they're part of this kind of um, elite establishment crowd who are very pro-Europe, very pro-Remain, very sort of, um, shall we say, stuck in the way that they wish to see the country going. And they're not that keen to have what they regard as radical home secretaries coming along uh, and throwing everything up in the air. I mean, I mean, that's almost certainly true. I mean, this is yeah, the, the classic sort of Sir Humphrey picture, um, which is that, you know, if you've been 
serving an institution for a long time, your sort of pride and reputation is bound up in that institution, and you're naturally going to be very resistant to the idea that you and your colleagues have been doing things wrong um, for any extended period of time. And I, th- and I think it's important to remember that, you know, that Dominic Cummings, for all that he sort of has his very unique approach to doing these things, he's, he's far from the first person to suggest that, that Whitehall needs an overhaul and that, that bits of it aren't fit for purpose. Yeah. This, is, this is a common complaint. But the question is how you do it. And I think it needs a little bit more subtlety than the government is showing at the moment. I suppose so. But if the uh, civil service are trying to take him and her on at their own game, they're not going to win, are they? I mean, supposedly she's now uh, demanded an official inquiry into where the leak came from over the weekend, that she apparently has lost the trust of MI5, which is a pretty serious thing to say about the Home Secretary. That is a very serious allegation, and I think it's right that that's going to be thoroughly investigated because it, because it fundamentally it undermines the credibility of the British government abroad, um, you know, regardless of what you think about domestic challenges. As for whether or not the government's going to win, I, think, I, I mean, I think we should hope they do um, because ultimately one of the things that Boris Johnson has put at the centre of his programme in the wake of Brexit is reasserting um, the power of the elected government and of parliament over, you know, unelected institutions, whether that be the civil service or the courts or whatever else. But actually winning, you know, that's not guaranteed. There's a reason that the civil service has been able to resist reform for so long. You know, they are permanently in place. They have all, they have this vast depth of expert first-hand knowledge. When a minute, when a new minister comes into a department, you know, that minister's not an expert. Who do they depend on for advice? Their civil servants. Mm. It's a very, very difficult game to play, and 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 the, and the prime minister will, and and Dominic Cummings will have to play it very, very well if they actually want to make any progress. So Helen McNamara, the director of propriety and ethics at the cabinet office, is going to conduct this leak inquiry. What do we know about her? Uh, I'm afraid that off the top of my head, I couldn't <laughs> tell you anything about her at all. Right. Well, this is the thing, isn't it? I mean, what we don't know about who runs the country in terms of these massive great departments of state uh, and the numbers and thousands of people who work inside them. You know, there's an awful lot we don't know. We see the public face of politics, we see the public face of government, and we can either like it or not like it. But what we don't know is what's going on behind those great walls of, uh, of the Foreign Office or of the Home Office or of the uh, Department of Health. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and I think this is one of the one of the strongest cases, really, for for make, for for pro democratic reform. Yeah. This is very often the case. I mean, you know, police and crime commissioners, for example. Now, there's an awful lot of bad things you can say about police and crime commissioners. You know, that they, they, you know, they got very low turnout, and some of them weren't very impressive. But I think the thing that was illustrated by police and crime commissioners is that. Th- those decisions, which they are now publicly accountable for, were previously being taken by sort of groups of completely anonymous and invisible people inside uh, the, the sort of law enforcement hierarchy. You know, some of the worst police and crime commissioners from the first round of PCCs uh, had previously been serving completely anonymously, completely unaccountably mm. in the system. And I think you know, it's the same, for example, with Quangos. You know, huge amounts of regulatory power and other kind of uh, and, and, and public money are being dispersed by these you know, quasi-autonomous groups which are independently led by people to who, who aren't accountable to us, who aren't necessarily following any agenda that relates to what the government wants to do. And that's a huge problem. The civil service is a particularly acute example. And, and, and personally, I think you're never going to get to a point where the public have any interest in all serious knowledge of the civil service. Mm. But it's only really one part of a broader challenge, which is how do we bring power closer, if not directly to the people, then at least to the people elected by the people. Well, one of the things we're going to talk about later on in the show is the the ballooning of the House of Lords expenses, which have massively gone up over the course of the last sort of 12 months or so. Also, an amazing story in the Times today about uh, how so many people are being paid off from the civil service in six-figure sums, despite the fact that uh, some years ago that was supposed to be outlawed, and it doesn't happen. 
No, it doesn't. It, and, and I think, you know, one of the problems is that driving any of these agendas through, for, let's take the civil service pay first, driving any of these agendas through usually requires leaving one able and interested minister in post for a long time. And understandably, prime ministers, you know, they reshuffle their government every couple of years, they move people around, they promote people, they demote people. And, and that can be great for individual careers, but it does mean that it's very easy uh, for the civil service to basically reset things when a new minister comes in. And you, read, if you, you, know, you read the stories of ministers uh, who, who are writing their biographies from after they've left office. Mm. It's one of the most classic civil service stories, is that when a new minister comes in, uh, the civil service rearrange the department to their liking whilst everyone's away, and then they just pretend that that's how it's always been. Um, and I think that that's one of the reasons that the prime minister, you know, when you're reshuffling your government, you do need to be very careful about, you know, how often you move people, especially when uh, on when they're relating to the topics that you think are most important. I must admit, one of the things I enjoyed reading over the weekend was that book by um, the former aide David Cameron talking about the night of the referendum result coming in and how it was kind of perceived to be um, a stitch up by uh, Boris Johnson and Michael Gove and how all that sort of played out. I found that really interesting. That may make me a complete uh, geek, of course, but uh, I'm willing to accept that. Makes two of us. <laughs> but it was amazing, wasn't it? When you, you felt like you were in the room with them. I mean, it is, I, I, I absolutely live for these kind of first-hand accounts because, you know, it's all very easy to read, you know, at the time, you know, people like me writing about this stuff, sources and so on. Oh, we're just losing you. We've just lost you there for a second, Henry. Sorry, oh. can you try that again? Hello? Yeah, I'm, 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 I can hear you, but you just disappeared for a sec. Oh, well, OK, I was just saying there's really nothing like the first-hand account of somebody who was in the room when their decisions were being made, but they're now no longer in office or, yes. you know, serving someone in office, and so they can afford to be honest. You know, I think the best possible example is the Crossman Diaries, mm. you know, from the 1960s, which were the basis for Yes Minister. You know, all of these completely frank first-hand accounts of, 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 the, of the Wilson government and of the civil service, yes. um, there's, nothing, there's nothing beats it. Interestingly enough, we should talk about the budget now as well, because Rishi Sunak, of course, uh, given uh, the, the sort of keys to the Chancellor's office, as it were, relatively unexpectedly, uh, relatively recently, and it turns out that uh, he's now found about another £8 billion he didn't know we had, uh, and he's going to be spending possibly more than Tony Blair did. Yes. I mean, there's always a slight danger in making comparisons like that, because, of course, Tony Blair was last in office more than 10 years ago, and yes. government budget do increase. Um, but but yeah, it, it does signify a real change, um, if not in the way, in, in the way that the Conservative Party is, is governing. Because of course, in the 1980s, during this last kind of major apex, there was the Thatcher government. There was a major emphasis on on kind of weaning back from the sort of mid 20th century welfare state. And then, whilst initially, if we remember, David Cameron did want to do things differently, and he did actually manage to he did pledge to match Labour's spending plans. Then, of course, there was the financial crisis, and the government came into office with the austerity program. And so what we have now is that the government's no longer, not only is the government no longer really quite under as much pressure as on austerity as it used to be, but it's won all of these new seats. It has a new electoral coalition. And what we're seeing is that is changing the nature of the Conservative government, and mm. it is now going to be spending considerably more money, less guiltily. But, of course, as many people point out about Boris Johnson, he's not necessarily what you might regard as a fiscal Conservative, is he? I mean, uh, he's really quite sort of free with everybody else's money. Well, yeah, I mean, Boris Johnson likes to be liked fundamentally. If there's, if there's one thing that guides his politics more than anything else, it's the fact that he likes being popular. And being popular, and the easiest way to be popular is to spend money. Yes. Um, so that was always going to be how he governed. I think the question really is whether or not he, can, he and Rishi Sunak can find a way to spend money effectively in a way that creates tangible benefits for people over the next five years. Because one of the things that you know, Theresa May found out, and I, it's still one of the most remarkable 
sort of quotations, I think, that came out of her government, was that she announced this vast increase in NHS spending, and all she really got out of it was a day's headline. NHS spending is too abstract to really be appreciated by people. So what you really need is sort of targeted spending, which is actually can be quite a low amount of money, but creates a tangible benefit in an an individual community or seat. And that's what they need to try and find a way to do over the next five years. Yeah. And I guess uh, not only uh, does does he have to sort of settle... I mean, he's been working in the Treasury, so it's not as if he's been sort of parachuted in and has to find a whole bunch of <clears throat> allies that he can talk to. But he is talking about moving some Treasury officials out of the of the capital and somewhere up into the, the north of England, possibly Teesside. Um, he's not going to be too popular with that idea, is he? No, and I think this is one of the challenges of, 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 of this whole programme. You know, the BBC tried to do it when they moved things to Salford, and, and all they really did was create another bubble in Salford. Um, you know, there, are real, there are reasons that the, so many of the sort of institutions of government are concentrated in, in London, and, and, and that's because they really, in some cases, do benefit from being close to each other. Now, proposals to move things like the civil service north are at least better than proposals to move things like the House of Lords north, because you really do need the, the, the different bits of Parliament to be near each other. That's just essential. Um, but it will be challenging. But on the other hand, you know, we shouldn't rule out the fact that civil service jobs do provide a, a decent pay, and it will be, and that, that money will go even further if you're living in somewhere like Newcastle. So we shouldn't necessarily assume that they won't be able to attract talent to those positions. But no, it, it might not be popular with people already in post. No, quite. And just one final thought, Henry. I understand the uh, Labour Party voting system wheels into action today, um, or later this week, perhaps, for uh, the, lead- the leadership candidates. Presumably the longest voting process in the history of voting, is it? Well, I mean, I don't think they've done themselves any favours with this extraordinarily extended process. Because, I mean, at the beginning at the beginning of the Labour leadership contest, they seem to be doing perfectly well. You know, they were kind of examining yeah. maybe why they lost. And, and then they've just given themselves enough time to have this completely surreal implosion over transgender rights. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean it would do them no harm whatsoever to just have a vote, to, you know, this week and declare a new leader uh, by Friday. Yeah, precisely. Um, but it's the Labour Party, right? I mean, this is just how they do things. It's one of the most interesting you know, differences between the Tories and Labour is that the Tories are kind of this absolute monarchy that tends to have quite short procedures, whereas Labour are this kind of feudal system mm. where you've got to balance all of these different groups. Um, you know, it remains to be seen who will win, but yeah, I think they would I think they would have done the party a favour with a shorter contest. I think you're absolutely right. Henry, thank you very much indeed. Henry Hill, Assistant Editor of Conservative Home, uh, talking a great deal of sense. The problem uh, with many of these officials inside of Whitehall is exactly as you would expect it to be, right? One, they are faceless individuals who do not apparently have to stand up to anybody uh, or be given any sort of proper rigorous uh, overlook by the British public. Now, we have decided, as the British public, to elect a government which has been given very strong orders to get on with the business of government and has been given very strong instructions about how it is that the government should be um, going ahead and progressing, right? Now, I don't wish for the head of the Home Office, I don't wish for the head of the Foreign Office uh, in the Civil Service to be uh, dictating the terms under which the government does that because they are not elected, they are not accountable um, and they are fireable, I would say. Uh, If Priti Patel doesn't want somebody in in a particular job, she should be able to kick them out of it. It's nothing to do with whether or not we need strong and stable government, as Theresa May used to call it. It's nothing to do with whether or not these people are there to keep politicians in their place because it's not their place to do it. I'm not calling for people to be sacked. I'm calling for people to be moved. It's as simple as that. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. 
Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. We are, of course, here all the way through until one o'clock. We're live streaming on YouTube as well. Uh, so if you want to go and join that live stream, you can do so right now because, of course, it's the only place to be. You can listen to us, but you can watch us as well. And I'm delighted to say that here we are now uh, in the company of Dr. Barrett Pankani, a senior clinical lecturer at the University of Exeter Medical School. We've spoken on the phone a few times, but Dr. Barrett has been kind enough to come into the studio uh, and inform us with what the latest business is on the coronavirus. Dr. Barrett, thank you very much for coming in. Morning. Very good morning to you. Thanks for, for joining us. Now, um, the big story, I suppose, today seems to be, one, uh, there's a problem with Italy, which I wonder whether you could, could address with us. And also, people have been quite critical of the manner in which some of the people were flown back from Japan, from that cruise ship, where it was clear that some people might have been infected, and it might be that many more people are now infected. Sure. So, um, shall, shall we start with the flight back from Japan first? So, with respect to the flight back from Japan... I think we should go easy on being critical because um, it is entirely possible to have been tested negative before boarding the flight. So if you are tested negative, and these tests are very sensitive and very specific, so provided the test was undertaken correctly mm. and we've got a correct, correct negative result, then there is no reason why they shouldn't have been allowed to board. They were incubating the illness, and soon after arriving in the UK, they tested positive. So at that point, they, they turned from negative to positive, meaning they've now got an active infection. Right. Although I suppose it's difficult, isn't it, for the medical staff, because apparently we were told this some weeks ago, that you can pass the, 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 the virus on without actually showing any signs of being infected by it. So there's a pretty good chance, is there not, that some of the people who were also on that plane will also now be infected? It's unlikely, but even if it was, we have got a contained group of people, passengers on a plane. So we know who the close contacts of those potential cases are and have been. So uh, this is not something to be worried about because it is in a controlled environment. We know who was there, we know who sat where, and therefore we can do contact tracing and monitoring. On the subject that you mentioned about could they be releasing virus before they became symptomatic, mm. We feel it's unlikely. What we are finding in the scientific literature is that people may have mild symptoms, so mild that they don't register as illness. Yes. And this is, unfortunately, the conundrum we are facing okay. with. Okay. So yeah. there could be people wandering around in London, for example, who have got some form of it, but without really thinking or realising that that's what they have. At this point in time, I'm still positive that in London we've got it contained, London and the UK. OK. Yeah. But it is entirely possible that in time we will have people who are asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic who may be infected. Right. It's a matter of time. And as far as you're concerned and the medical community is concerned, there's nothing getting worse here as such. I mean, obviously more and more people will become infected because that's the nature of things, but there's no reason to worry that the, the virus is getting, you know, in some way more dangerous or in some way, you know, more um, uh, toxic. No, no, not at all. And, and my virology colleagues have been monitoring what we call the genome, the makeup of the virus right. and we don't see any sort of changes towards nastiness or otherwise right. it is it is what it is and it is what was found mid-december onwards so it's persistent consistent it has remained the same okay and so meanwhile over in italy uh, we've got about a dozen towns apparently in lockdown uh, there's a big outbreak of coronavirus it would seem in 
Europe. 152 people in Italy have apparently been infected with what they're calling COVID-19 now. And the Austrian government is assembling some kind of task force and talking about shutting borders. Um, I suppose the freedom of movement in Europe is not going to help that. No, and this is an extraordinary situation, which is we've got a new hot spot. And now what do you do about it? Mm. And and that new hotspot happens to be northern Italy. Yes. And we've got a number of cases, increasing number of cases, and unfortunately some people very ill and, and fatalities. Mm. Um, what are we going to do? Let us take this question of borders away. What we have to do is try and contain it, if we can, in northern Italy. And hence this measure of saying, look, let us restrict movements from that geographical hotspot. And what about the, the, the problem in northern Italy? Why, why northern Italy, for example? I mean, I see that uh, one particular man from Bergamo has died. Um, what, why have, have they got it worse than everybody else? I think what has happened is obviously the infection was introduced there or somebody who was infected arrived there and then generated a few cases mm. and then a few more. And what, we've happened, what has happened is we've got quite a few primary and secondary cases, i.e. person-to-person spread, uncontrolled. And then suddenly, this is the issue, suddenly people thought, let us test. And upon testing, they realised... We've got COVID here. Right. And that's what's probably happened. Right. And so for people who are in Italy, in other parts of Italy, I mean, we've got colleagues who, for example, might be in a place like Milan. There's fashion shows going on. Fashion week is happening. People are worried they might be stuck there. I mean, would your advice be not to go to Italy or or if you're in Italy, um, not to leave? I mean, what's, what, what, what is likely to be the, the, the next few days? Uh, this is an interesting and a rapidly evolving situation. Mm. Milan is in the northern part of Italy, very close to where the hotspot is. Okay. And so, what would I do? I would say, if I was in Milan, I, I want to do my social distancing and things. Yes. Right? I am now, I would say to myself, in the proximity of a hot zone. Right. Social distancing, hand hygiene, mm. keep clear, keep careful, and keep on washing my hands, because that is all the momentum yeah. we've got. I mean, is it, is it as simple as well as, as not going out? I mean, I know we talk a lot about self-isolating and, 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 and staying at home. And I mean, is it, can it be transferred by food? I mean, if you, if you were in Milan, for example, would you go out for dinner uh, or would you not? I would try and avoid crowded places. Yeah. Uh, and it is crowded places where I think the risks are higher. But maintain good hygiene. Mm. And so if I was to go out for dinner, one of the things I want to do is not to go to a crowded place. Right. But the other thing is scrupulous hand hygiene. Because at the moment, we feel the mode of transmission is droplet spread from surfaces where your hands have picked up this, inf- uh, this virus. And then it's transferred to your mouth to your respiratory system, mouth, nose, eyes, and then we get infected. So I would want to avoid that. Wash my hands frequently, dry them. Mm. And then if I cannot wash them frequently, use an alcohol-based gel. And then one more good piece of advice is wash your hands before eating. This is very important. But it's not only wash, it's wash and dry. Yes. And what about the other countries that border um, Italy? Because, of course, Austria is only one. You've also got Switzerland, you've got Slovenia... Uh, a bit of France as well. I mean, uh, should they be being careful about their borders too? Yes, I would. I, it, it's, it's almost, um, you know, a no-brainer. Mm. Uh, the no-brainer is, look, the hotspot is in the northern districts of Italy. 
we've got problem there. It's an unknown, unknown problem. We don't yeah. know the scale of it. Right. What to do? I would say, well, look, let us restrict movement from this part of northern Italy to other parts of Europe and further yeah. afield. And this is the kind of thing that does worry people, I think, because, you know, there's a sort of irrationality when people hear the words, you know, closing borders or banning mm. flights mm. and all of that, because presumably it's, it, it's entirely possible that somebody in Heathrow or in London might say, all right, we're now going to not allow any flights in from Milan. Uh, indeed. Um, what we have to do is be measured in our actions. And with respect to that hotspot that has come from northern Italy, we have to consider and say, look, as you're coming from that hotspot, we wish to quarantine you yeah. or we wish to keep you out of circulation. Yes. Because it is exactly what we did with Wuhan in China. Exactly right. Uh, very interesting stuff. Dr. Barat Pankhania, the senior clinical lecturer at the University of Exeter Medical School. Thank you very much for coming in. Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Don't forget, you can, of course, uh, listen to us on uh, DAB Radio as well as online, but you can now watch us, I'm glad to say, uh, on YouTube. So where you can go there, subscribe to the channel, uh, and you'll get updates on all the other good things that we do here uh, at Talk Radio TV. Right now, though, um, let's talk to Lord Charlie Faulkner, uh, one of our very favourite peers in the House of Lords. He's going to be telling us uh, what he makes of this amazing story in the Sunday Times that uh, some peers have been claiming quite a lot of money and expenses, but not particularly contributing much uh, to the ongoing process of democracy. Uh, Charlie, very good uh, morning to you. Welcome. Good morning, Mike. This good is not great you. timing, is it, for uh, for those people who are talking about possibly trying to find a reason to reform the House of Lords? Uh, no, but I do think the House of Lords does need um, reform. I think it's wrong that you have a wholly appointed House. There needs to be an elected element. And if there is an elected element, then that will make those people who are peers um, accountable to the electorate. It will make it very, very much harder for peers to, as it were, take expenses and do nothing, which is broadly what very few do. Yes, very few, but, but those are the ones that make the headlines in the Sunday Times, and unfortunately those are the ones that people kind of focus on. And to see some of them uh, claiming for 169 days of attendance but without having making, made any kind of spoken contribution, it just doesn't look very good. No, I completely agree uh, with that. Though I think, by and large, the way that the House of Lords performs is it does a good service in the Constitution, in the sense that what it does is it, it looks at legislation, it makes it better, it makes suggestions to the House of Commons and makes sure that legislation works better. It's people who aren't, um, as it were, thinking only of what the whip says, but what's good in policy terms for the country. But I'm not seeking any way to defend those people who, for example, take 169 days' worth of expenses and make absolutely no contribution. No, quite. I mean, one of the things that I saw an awful lot of over the course of the weekend in reaction to this story was people saying, you know, many of these uh, people in the Lords are quite elderly, um, but there's an awful lot of other elderly people out there uh, who struggle every single day of, of their lives because they don't have enough money, uh, they haven't got a big enough pension to look after themselves, and, and so people are, you know, people do compare those two things and think there's something not quite right. Yeah, and that's a legitimate comparison. But the nature of the Lords is it's a lot of people who have done other things in their lives, like, for example, being members of Parliament or like being uh, in the civil service or being head teachers or being doctors who then come to the Lords and make a contribution based on what they've learned. So inevitably, it's going to have more elderly people than, for example, the Commons. But I, again, I don't demur from your point that for people 
who are struggling in old age and a very low pension. It is very, very irksome. Yeah, I mean, you and I have spoken about this many times, and I know that you've you've often said that one of the the impediments to reform is actually the House of Commons because they don't really kind of they can't agree on what the reform should actually be. But I mean, it's probably now safe to say that Tony Blair's reform hasn't really worked because all it's done is increased the number of people. And I think they're now going to have the highest number of peers of all time, something like 834, with the next sort of shipment of, uh, of peers that go in. And enough is enough, I think a lot of people feel. Well, what I've said previously to you, Mike, is the reason why there is not reform is because the Commons will not agree to any elected element mm. because they're worried once there is an elected element in the Lords the Lords will be equal in its authority to the Commons. So the real people you should be focusing on to try to force change is the Commons and not the Lords, because we in the Lords will have to accept whatever reform the Commons imposes, and they just will not agree to reform, not because they disagree, but because as a group they don't want there to be an alternative democratic force within the Palace of Westminster. Mm. And it's there that the pressure's got to be. And I think the choice ultimately is always going to be, do you want two elected chambers? If you're not willing to have two elected chambers, then the question is, do you just have one chamber altogether? Because the Lords, because it's unelected, is ultimately unacceptable to the public. Could the Lords not start some kind of um, conversation, though, perhaps a sort of national debate, if you like, out with uh, the House of Commons giving its permission? Um, and I think people would, would welcome that in the sense that they could see that, that you were as keen on reforming it as everybody else is. Yes, we could, and we have done it from time to time. But everybody understands that the, that the, that the main feature, the A movie of politics, is the House of Commons, and you can't do anything about reforming uh, the, the, the um, House of Lords unless the Commons agrees. There's a bigger picture, though, here, isn't there, which is that the Lords at the moment, like the courts, like the BBC, like the Treasury, like talk radio, they're all means of holding a very, very strong government to account. And the weaker all of these organisations are, the less accountable uh, Boris Johnson's government will be. I mean, I think the Lords is significant, but it's obviously been weakened by the disclosures over the weekend. Yeah, I take your point, but I, you know, I have to say that I think the BBC uh, could probably do without having, you know, 61 different radio stations and, you know, CBBS to hold the Prime Minister to account. There's many ways of, of, as you put it, weakening it without actually weakening its ability to do the job that it's supposed to be doing. Similarly, the House of Lords has weakened itself, I think, by having too many people in it uh, and by appearing to be some somewhat undemocratic in some of the ways that it operates. Well... As far as the BBC is concerned, it is the strongest and most respected news gathering and news reporting organisation in the world. We mean after Talk Radio? Oh, well, obviously after <laughs> Talk Radio, and obviously after the Independent Republic of mm. Graham, which obviously is itself a force talked about, but subject to that yes. point, it is very, very, and that's a very, very powerful thing as far as the United Kingdom is concerned. Yes, no, I get that. It, it, and you say, well, it's got children's television and lots of local radio. It has, but it's such a big organisation. It makes it, as it
it were, untouchable to a large extent, which is a very good thing. Well, up to a point, I think when you see uh, what people have to say, what ordinary people do uh, about the amounts of money that go through it, the amounts of money that some of the people that work there get paid, you know, it's a it's a bit of a gravy train. I think you'd, you'd have to agree. But what about, I was actually down, you'll be pleased to know, at the heart of government, only last week, I took my kids on a tour of uh, the Houses of Parliament, which was marvellous, uh, and I was able failed, to... You failed to get in touch with me, Mike. Well, because I, th- I assumed you would, I assumed you might not have been there, so I, I, I will do it next time, but I stood in the... I wouldn't the, have been there last week because it was half term. That's, that's what I mean. So as a result yeah. of that, though, we were able to stand in the two chambers and look around. And yeah. it's, it's a magnificent building and with a magnificent history, but one of the things that did come up was where all you guys are going to go uh, for a while, because it did look a bit like a building site in parts of the, the, the Westminster Palace, because it's all being, you know, fixed up again. Um, have you any news yet on where you're likely to move to? Well, I, I mean, the building is falling apart, yeah. and I think the general view is that if you try and repair it with everything in it, it's going to cost literally billions yeah. more than if we clear out. Mm. I think the Commons is going to Richmond House. That's what I'm hearing, yeah. Across the road from number 10 Downing Street, there's also a suggestion, I'm not sure whether this applies to the Lord, that it should go to the QE2 conference yes. centre, because you need you need a big chamber, which the Richmond House and QE2 have got, uh, but it will, I suspect, have a very significant effect on the mood of the place. Did you go and stand in the Commons chamber? I did. And you can see it's a place absolutely designed for people yabooing at each other across the chamber. But that's what we like about it. Well, we like that to some extent, but it means constantly scoring points and taking chunks out of your opponents is what makes you a successful politician. Is that the way to get the right policies? Well, to be honest, when you look at places that don't have that sort of design, like, for example, even the Scottish Parliament, which is woefully boring, uh, and in fact, the worse than that, the European Parliament, where they all just sort of sit around and press buttons and only are only allowed to speak for sort of 30 seconds at a time. I think I, I, it may not be the best, but it's not the worst. It's certainly not the worst. It makes for um, sort of, it, you really get personified what the disagreements are, for yeah. example, in Prime Minister's Question Time, but it makes everybody want to disagree so they look good as against their opponents. Well, I suppose you could argue that that might be the televising of it as well, which has led to that. I, I'm, just, I'm very taken by the idea that, that Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn have to be slightly more than two sword lengths away from one another. I thought I really like that. Well, they- well, they'd kill each other. <laughs> Speaking of which, um, I see yeah. that the process of voting has begun on the old Labour Party leadership scenario. Yeah. Um, have you yeah. cast your vote yet? I have not cast my vote yet. Uh, I won't be casting my vote for um, Rebecca Long-Bailey. Okay. Because I believe that if I vote for Rebecca Long-Bailey, I'll be sending a... If she gets selected, that'll be sending a signal to the public that we are, as it were, continuing with the Corbyn era. Yeah. And that's been firmly repudiated by the public. It's, for me, a choice between Keir Starmer and Lisa Nandy. I think both of them have got considerable strengths. I think I will probably vote for Keir Starmer in the end. Yes, and he may well emerge, as we, as, as we all think he will emerge as, as, as the winner, but we shall see. Um, Lord Charlie Faulkner, thank you very much indeed. Next time I'm down in the House of Lords neck of the woods, I'll pop in for some tea. I will let, I'll, I'll make arrangements for you. Independent Republic of Mike Graham to be treated like an independent power arriving. Very kind. Thank you very much indeed. Lord Charlie Fuller, what a great man he is. Uh, despite the fact that he sat in the Blair government, which many of you uh, don't like, um, he was a great um, member of that government. And as I've always said, uh, despite the fact that everybody now hates Tony Blair, I thought Tony Blair was a pretty good Prime Minister. But uh, there we are. Let's talk to Glenn, uh, who's got an idea from Milton Keynes. Hello, Glenn. Hello, mate. Hello, Devil Oil. Very well, sir, indeed. What can I do for you? Well, this gravy train's been going for years, Mike. It you has. Know, like... 
waiting for the, you know, parking the taxi outside, signing on, and then, bang, you know, jumping in the cab and away you go. Surely if they'd done a system where you've got to sign in, yeah. say at 10 o'clock, don't, don't make it too early for the boys and girls, do you? <laughs> and, 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 and they've got to sign, let's say, at four, but they've got to be in the house. And, you know, then I could sort of say fair enough. But I can't understand it. It's, it's an old people's home for wealthy old men. Yeah, it really and is. I, and last year I watched on the, they had a programme at Lords on there, and they, they were showing all their food subsidies, wines, uh, beef, you know. Like, yeah. I, I pay more for my English breakfast every morning when I go down a cafe. I know, staggering. I mean, it was so uh, male-oriented as well. When I was there the other day, they've, if you look up from the, the, the floor of the chamber, it's quite interesting, they've got this kind of vanity curtain uh, because in the olden days, when women used to be allowed to sit in the uh, uh, in the observer's gallery, the viewing gallery, uh, they had to have, make sure that the men sitting in the chamber couldn't see their ankles in case they got too excited. Well, you know, I can't understand because, you know, I've heard you know, people banging on about, you know, uh, you know, if a, a woman does a bit of cleaning, she don't pay the tax on that. Right. You know, we, we should bang her up. Yeah, you're giving them 320 quid now, cash in hand. Yeah. They don't pay tax on it. They don't. that's wrong. It is totally wrong. And also, the idea that they suddenly say, well, of course I had to turn up uh, because I had to say something, except they didn't say anything for an entire year. I find that I mean, staggering. I mean, life's so unfair. I mean, I, I don't want to change the subject a bit, but, you know, my wife is one of these four million who, who missed out on the pension. Oh, yeah, the waspy women, yeah. But the guy who's done it, who, who brained, you know, this, you know, idea that, you know, these women... I mean, first of all, somewhere, I read somewhere that the money that the government's taking them, that's why they can't pay it, mm. let's pay something else. But so this guy at 60, I think 61, he's retired on a £2,000 pension, plus they give him 250 grand bonus. Yeah. And, you know, my wife, is, you know, her health is in 100%. She's got to work till she's 66 now. I know. Shocking. You know, and you think, and you think you, anybody says anything, oh, you know... And I just can't believe how life is so bad. The gravy train goes on for who you know and who you don't know. You know what I mean? Well, some of these people uh, are millionaires, right? How about you means test them uh, the other the other way around from how you normally means test them? If you've got enough money, you basically don't claim any expenses at all. You just pay for your right. own pay your own way. But I mean, uh, surely uh, you know, there's people in their eighties and nineties. I ain't trying to be funny, Mike. What you know? I mean, all right, a lot of them are all right, but a lot of them are surely you know that. Their faculties ain't full. I hate to say that. Their faculties ain't all there, don't they? No, you've, right you've, got, got, to have, you've got to have a point, and possibly after a long lunch, uh, even less so. Well, you know, it's, it's so unfair. I just think, you know, if they want to do that, I mean, this has been... I've heard about this for, you know, 20 years, they've just mm. you know, the gravy train. And I thought, I thought getting out of Europe was uh, the gravy train stopped there, but it carries on in this yeah. country. Well, I mean, we've managed to do that, so why not carry on with this, well, the people's idea of how Parliament should be run and let's get it properly changed. Glenn, a great call. Thank you very much indeed. Glenn and Milton Keynes there making a lot of sense, as so many of the callers to this show do, uh, because this is the home of common sense here at the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. It is the fastest growing radio show on the planet uh, with the fastest growing radio station in the world as well, uh, because people are starting to be become slightly fed up uh, being told why they should think a particular way, why something has to stay the way it is, why the House of Lords is so necessary, why the European Union is such a great place, you know, why the BBC should not be in any way dismantled. You know, all of that is a crock of nonsense and we will pomp, uh, pop, pop anybody's pomposity uh, who wants to pretend that all of those things are the same. Because guess what? Many of those people who say such things agree that all of those three things, the BBC, the European Union and the House of Lords are all sacrosanct. Well, Tony Blair has messed up the House of Lords and there's too many people in it and we need to get rid of some of them so simple as that mid-morning with mike graham talk radio the independent republic of mike graham on talk radio 
Well, it wasn't exactly the greatest half term, was it, in terms of the weather? Uh, my kids were in London. We staggered about uh, in the rain for quite some time, managed to get soaked about three times. And, uh, you know, you had to keep nipping into places to stay dry and stay out of it. Apparently today, though, uh, there's snow closing something like 300 schools. Traffic has ground to a halt. Blizzards are sweeping up and down the country as far south as the Midlands. Uh, after two weeks of storm and flood chaos, how much worse can it get? Let's talk to Jim Dale uh, from British Weather Services. Jim, a very good afternoon yeah. Hi, good afternoon, Mike. Is it bad? I mean, I haven't seen a snowflake uh, that I could call a snowflake yet in uh, London, apart from obviously no. the ones that, uh, that are all moaning about me. No, I think the, the, the main issue is uh, almost certainly Scotland, and uh, the, the main, main issue in Scotland is going to be the high ground, the highlands, the Grampians, southern uplands, uh, yeah, little forays further south, parts of the Pennines, Cleveland Hills, um, kind of little bits and pieces elsewhere, but the, the main stuff, uh, it's not so much blizzards because it, because the winds are not that strong across the Highlands and Grampians, but still the, the snow is coming down. They're in that cold Arctic polar t- type airstream and that's why they're getting what they're getting. Right. And does that mean that the flights and trains and things might be affected as well? Possibly, yeah. Certainly those that are going up and over hills and mountains and roundabouts, yeah. And it isn't just a snow affair either because come tonight there'll be ice and I think ice will be a a real problem in the next 24, 48 hours and probably a bit longer than that as well as as the week unfolds and some desperately low temperatures in in the glens of Scotland and feeding down then across England, Wales, Northern Ireland in terms of uh, scraping the, the, the ice off the car and all the rest of it. Mm. So I think the snow events, if you like, further south, more likely to be coming in the form of showers and just, just the, the old wintry stuff where you can get a hail yeah. fleet or a snow shower, that, that type of event, and that's probably the only event that might affect, for example, London yes. that you're speaking about. I mean, it's been, pretty, it's been pretty mild this winter, really, hasn't it? We haven't really seen any yeah, snow no, yeah. to speak of. No, it's, it's been a mild... Uh, I, uh, I don't know whether you, you saw the news or whatever, but, but, but this has been the mildest uh, Northern Hemisphere winter on record. Mm. And, and I don't just mean the UK. We're talking about America. We're talking about other places as well. So this is it, the warmest. I hate using the word warm because it's not warm, even in, when it is warm, if you see what I'm trying to say. It's, it's <laughs> not really. <laughs> no, I, I prefer the word mild, uh, yes. less cold, right. uh, and all the rest of it. Yeah, so, it doesn't so feel mildly, warm, let's face it. No, no, it's not. No, you're not going to go out there in a t-shirt very easily. No. Uh, it's it's mild conditions for the most part for the last several weeks, which is why, to be honest with you, it's why we've taken in so much uh, b- uh, buckets of rain mm. uh, because it's coming off the Atlantic, and that's always going to be for the most part anyway uh, a milder direction. So that's what we've had. Maybe this this cold foray that we're getting, particularly Scotland, but looking further ahead, it looks like the, the cold is the sort of winner this week. So rather than too much of the wet stuff, there still will be some wet stuff. Um, it's more likely that we're going to go into a period of slightly colder weather. I've mentioned the the, the, the ice on the window screens and all of yeah. that. Yes, snow in, snow in Scotland will, will, will continue off and on. Uh, it's a little bit of that. So... I, you kind of when you get the cold, you lose for the most part. You lose the uh, the, the volume of rain or precipitation that goes with it, if that makes sense. Yes, so no, it cold. does. I'm looking at I'm looking at figures today that say it might be the wettest February on record as well. Yeah, normally February is a dry month. It's it it is, is it? on record. Yeah, it's 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 on record as being the, the driest 
month of the year, not just because it's got a few days less than, than the rest of them, mm. but because at this time of year, we normally see continental airflow uh, off Europe, which is why it's also, on average, the coldest month of uh -huh. the year. Uh, so the two go hand in hand in terms of what we normally or on average see. That doesn't mean you don't get... Do, do you know what? I'll just cast your mind back, actually. This time last year, I think it was around the 21st, 22nd, 21 degrees in London. I remember walking around in central London taking pictures of people sitting on church, whatever's, you know, floors and, you know, outside I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. Sitting there eating their picnics. Nice. 21 degrees. Well, I mean, you know, these things happen. Let me ask you a yeah. question about February, right, which is actually not necessarily weather-related, but I saw something the other day in which it said, you know, we've got a leap year this year, right? The 29th of February for the first time in four years. Is there any reason why it couldn't be moved to another day? Because, uh, you know, if we had it, say, for example, at the end of June instead, we'd have an extra 32. day of summer, wouldn't we? Yeah, so 31 days of June. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, why can't we move yeah, it? I, I do, you know what? I, I, you're right. It's not a weather question. I'm not quite sure of the answer. I think it's always... Well, you know, I don't want another day of, you know, drich, rain and, yeah, and wind. I, I know. You, you get your extra day. I think it's all... What's the word? Is it, 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 I don't think it makes too much of a difference in terms. Of, I know what you're saying. Yeah. We're still in February. February is a, a, a ropey kind of month, if you like, in terms of most of the weather. And you prefer that extra day. Well, it would feel like an rock. extra hot day, wouldn't it, if it was at the end it of June? I suppose. It, I suppose it would. It's a bit mental, but yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I'm mental, mental that way. I, I mean, it'd be other no, way. you can't say that. It's, it's all in. It's all in the mind. Yes. Yeah, I, I see where you're going. Yes. I, I kind of don't make these rules. I just think, you know, with an 80-seat majority, these are the kind of things Boris Johnson could get to grips with and it could actually make us all feel better. Isn't, isn't the leap year uh, a global thing? It's not something that... I'm sure it is. It's, it's something, something to do with the atomic <laughs> clock, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's nothing to do with, with the UK on its own. No, but now that we're, you know, isolationists and standing oh, up on, no. and, you know, got control of our own borders and our own yeah, government, we, you know, we can do it. Time, yeah, we can start changing our own time, our own weather and all the rest of it. Of course we can. Uh, not. Um, but, <laughs> no. Listen, I remember a, a, an island in the South Pacific which decided once to change, yeah, um, uh, yeah. to change its time zone, right? So for one year only, they had no New Year's Eve. They just went straight from the 30th to the 1st of January. That's happy times, isn't it? Well, uh, you don't I, like New Year's Eve, it's ideal. They, they, they might have done it for a good reason. I, I mean, I think at any of these time switches and the, the you know... The, oh, no, they the, did. They the, did it. The reason they did it was they wanted to be in the Australian time zone because they wanted to do business more with Australia, which made it easier for them. So there is a, there is a good business, uh, a business progression reason behind that, yes. that, that, what they did. And I think in terms of... Uh, you know, moving the, the, the leap year day or moving uh, the clocks forward or back, you've always got to have a base of a, of a, of a reason uh, that all outweighs the other reason for keeping it where it is. Yes. And maybe you've come up with a good one. I don't know. It's not, not for me. <laughs> it's for other people. <laughs> it's one of those things that you could just it, talk about forever and it means uh, not very much of like, anything. But listen, yeah, Jim... A bit like the weather. Yes, yeah. a bit like that. Thank you very much indeed. Well, let's hope that uh, Jim's wrong uh, in the sense of all of this horrible wet, sort of wet, snowy, cold weather. Um, oh, actually, Jim, before I let you go, I've got to ask you about the weather on Friday. Um, oh, no, he's gone. I was going to ask you about the weather on Friday for a particular reason, but never mind. Uh, I'll tell you what we do have to do. Oh, he's back. Is he back? No, he's gone. He's back. Hello, Jim. Sorry Hello, about that. Uh, what's it going to be like on Friday? Uh, whereabouts? Uh, in London. 
Uh, I, I think it will be showery. I think the day, at the moment, anyway, day will be showery. I don't see it as being particularly unsettled. Right. We'll see. A few days away, a little bit of traffic to get there. You've obviously got a reason. Yeah, I have, but it's not. For, I can't reveal what that is, and it's nothing to do with me. But, Jim, thank you very much indeed. Uh, it may be uh, different to what we think it's going to be. That's why we pay these guys all this money to project the weather. I could have told you that. Thank you, Jim. Uh, thanks to everybody else. Uh, thank you to uh, my all-female crew today uh, because Con called in sick this morning. I don't know if he's got coronavirus or not. He may be back tomorrow. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.